do for me. At this time, we would like to dismiss our children for children's worship. They're all like, is he, is he going to let us leave or is he going to keep talking? <laughs> so um, you are free to go, kids. You don't have to listen to me. Um, let's see. This morning, if you would turn Second Peter, we'll begin there. Second um, Peter chapter 1 is where we will be beginning. I told Brian that um, for the next uh, however long it goes, um, I'm going to be preaching a series called Cross and Culture. Um, when he is out or every time I'm in the pulpit, and we'll be taking issues that our culture is dealing with, that our culture is talking about, um, and looking at them from a biblical perspective. And so I think this is important um, for us to do. And so we'll begin with Second Peter uh, chapter 1, um, verses 3 and 4 this morning. I just want to make a case for why we're doing this. Um, if you are there, say word. word. All right, here we go. Second Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. According to this passage, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, now what Peter doesn't say is that we have all things pertaining to just our spiritual life and just how we know God, but it says life in general. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness. In his word, God has given us all that we need to live this life in such a way to bring him glory and to end well. And so we turn to the scriptures, not simply on issues of our spiritual life, but issues in all of life. And issues of culture, and worldviews. We go to the scriptures because God has given us all things pertaining to life in the scriptures. So how we look at the world should be informed by the scriptures. How we view others should be informed by the scriptures. If we are to be salt and light in our world, we can only function as those things if we know how to address a fallen culture with the gospel through the scriptures. So this morning, we're going to begin this series on one of the most contentious issues in our society today. And many of you probably can already guess what that is, but it is the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. If you turn on your TV, you are confronted with this issue. Um, if it is sports, you are confronted with this issue. If you are watching the news, you are seeing pundits go back and forth over the issue of same-sex marriage, marriage equality, all these things. If you watch a TV show, a sitcom, you are confronted with at least one same-sex couple in a television show. The culture is doing a great job at defining what they think homosexuality is and what same-sex marriage should be. And if we stay silent on this issue 
then we allow culture to define the issue. And we allow culture to educate our children and the next generation on the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. So in the church, we must be about informing our people what the Bible says about these issues and how we are to address and think about these issues through a biblical worldview. Why should we talk about it? A few weeks ago, I read an article on the Gospel Coalition blog entitled, Why are Christians so concerned with homosexuality but ignoring gluttony? In other words, why are they so focused on this one sin but nobody's talking about gluttony, right? Well, well, first of all, nobody really knows what gluttony in Scripture means. Some would say it's overeating. Well, well, how do you know someone overeats? Well, if they're overweight, well, how do you know it's not medication that's making them overweight or slower metabolism or, or whatever the case is? There are very different and varying ways to define gluttony. So it's very hard to pinpoint what that is and what that looks like. Usually it's just referred to in the Bible as this lavish living, the prodigal son, the type of life he was living when he left. It was referred to as gluttony, um, just partaking and indulging in all the desires of the flesh. But, but the other reason that he gave, the reason we are talking so much about homosexuality right now, is because culture is talking about homosexuality. If culture was talking about gluttony, we would be addressing gluttony in the church, right? If the culture was talking about capital punishment, or whatever the case may be, if they were making a case that was unbiblical about one issue, the church would need to talk about that issue. So one of the reasons we talk about this issue is because culture at large is talking about it. And the culture, the opinion in our culture is changing on the subject. In 2008, in a poll done by the Pew Research Center, found that 39% of people favored same-sex marriage, allowing gays and lesbians to marry legally, and 51% opposed Fast forward four years to 2012, that had flipped 47% favor it and 43% oppose. And this year, the numbers have gone up in favor of same-sex marriage. So in four years, the culture has changed drastically on this issue. If you've been paying attention to the news, you saw a couple of weeks ago the CEO of Mozilla was made to step down from his position in that company because in 2008, he gave $1,000 to the Prop 8 campaign in California as a donation. In 2008, the President of the United States held the same position as the CEO of Mozilla. But the CEO of Mozilla was made to step down because of a contribution he made in private four, five years, six years now ago. This issue is being hotly debated. It's costing people their jobs. With television shows like Glee and Modern Family, among many others, we must be talking about this because if we don't, we allow pop culture to define marriage and sexuality of this generation. The second reason we need to talk about it, not only is the culture talking about it, the church at large is talking about it. Two weeks ago on Tuesday, a book entitled God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines was released. Now, you may hear that title and not think anything of it. But if you think about it for a second, you know what he's proposing. Is that those who are claiming homosexuality as the way they live and living in those open relationships can be Christian. That is the premise of his book. 
was released two weeks ago. Matthew Vines is a 20-something-year-old homosexual male. But this is what's important to know. Well, Jared, liberal Christians are always on that fringe. They always live in that space talking about the rights of homosexuals and, and, and those things. Uh, Matthew Vines is not your average liberal Christian. He claims to be a conservative evangelical Christian who was brought up in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. He claims the Bible is inerrant and authoritative and claims that repentance and faith in Christ is the only way to God. In other words, he's not this classic liberal theologian who denies inerrancy and biblical authority. In fact, in his book, he quotes men like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, and Timothy Keller. However, what he's seeking to do is to reinterpret 2,000 years of church teaching on the issue of homosexuality. And he's trying to reinterpret the verses in our scriptures that talk about this issue. Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in speaking about this book when it came out, said evangelical Christians in the United States now face an inevitable moment of decision. While Christians in other movements and in other nations face similar questions, the question of homosexuality now presents evangelicals in the United States with a decision that cannot be avoided. Within a very short time, we will know where everyone stands on this question. There will be no place to hide. There will be no way to remain silent. To be silent will answer the question. So we talk about it because culture talks about it. We talk about it because the church is talking about it. And lastly, we talk about it because the gospel is at stake. In that same article, Albert Moeller continues, Biblical Christianity cannot endorse same-sex marriage, nor accept the claim that a believer can be obedient to Christ and remain or persist in same-sex behaviors. The church is the assembly of the redeemed, saved from our sins and learning obedience in the school of Christ. Every single one of us is a sexual sinner in need of redemption. But we are called to holiness, to obedience, and to honoring marriage as one of God's most precious gifts and as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. In this debate, the very foundation of the gospel is at stake. If we can redefine sin where homosexuality is concerned, we can redefine sin in any arena. If we are indeed not sinners, we have no need of a savior. And thus, the gospel unravels. Listen, the gospel is not good news if we are not perishing. If we are not sinful people dead in our trespasses and sins, a gospel of Jesus taking on our sins at the cross does nothing for us. The gospel is at stake in this debate. It is dependent on us recognizing our sin and our need for a savior. We must call sin what the Bible calls sin. So as we look to that, we look to what is wrong with homosexuality. What is sinful about homosexuality? Because many would make the argument now in our culture that there's nothing sinful about two people in a loving, committed relationship to one another joining in that relationship. But we must look to the Bible for our answers. The first thing we must recognize at the church, as the church 
is that all sexual sin is sin. All sexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. God created sex to be experienced within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and only therein can it be celebrated. The Bible defines all sexual activity outside of marriage as sin. Jesus, in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus gets not only to the actions, but to the heart behind the actions. Proverbs 5 speaks explicitly about sex within marriage versus sex outside of marriage. And it is clear that the writer of Proverbs says this is wrong outside of marriage. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, Paul is saying that if you have a sex drive, the only way to satisfy that sex drive according to God's plan is to marry someone of the opposite sex. Paul said your sex drive is to drive you into a marital relationship, into the covenant of marriage with a man if you are a woman and with a woman if you are a man. Any and all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Now this is where we as the church have to look at things with a biblical worldview. Because we have a tendency to look at homosexuality as more grotesque or more sinful than the guy and girl in high school sleeping with each other on prom night. Or the man who's cheated on his wife multiple times. Or the guys who are stuck in the trap of looking at pornography over and over again. No, all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. We need to see it as such. It's all on an even plane before God. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Secondly, where homosexuality is concerned, it goes against God's design. God designed the sexual relationship for man and woman in the covenant of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God designed woman for man. Notice God didn't create a male and a female and then give Adam the choice. He didn't put both before Adam and say, which one are you attracted to? You pick. Before that, God had lined up all the animals and Adam was to name all the animals and God said not one of them was fit to be his helper. So God said, I will create woman, not another man to be 
Adam's helper. Homosexuality goes against God's design. Also, it goes against his sexual design. God designed the sexual relationship to reproduce his image in the world. In Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man and woman to be together in a sexual relationship for a purpose. That purpose was to reproduce God's image in the world. If man is made in God's image and we reproduce and fill the earth and have dominion over the earth, then God's image has dominion on the earth and he receives glory. The sexual relationship between man and woman is to glorify God through filling the earth with his image. So, all sexual sin, sin. Homosexuality goes against God's design. And lastly, homosexuality is the climax of idolatry. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. You may be like, what? Climax of idolatry? We'll look at what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 18. Now, we are all guilty of our own idolatry. Some of you were in the Grace University class the last six weeks called Gods at War, talking about the idols that we make in our hearts and that we worship and that we bow down to. You were probably made um, quite aware of your propensity to idolatry and that all sin stems from some form of idolatry. John Calvin says, Our hearts are idol-making factories. We are constantly creating idols in our own image to worship. Romans 1, Paul addresses this in beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, he's continuing his thought, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now notice he's been going through this whole list on idolatry and he's unpacking what idolatry has done to men and to the culture. And it finds its climax here in men and women worshiping themselves to the extent that they desire to be with someone who looks like them. 
It is the climax of idolatry. They've come to a point that they've run out of other things to create and now they just idolize themselves so much. They want to be with somebody who looks like them. But so that you don't think somehow you don't fit into this category, Paul continues in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So just in case you felt like you didn't fall into that category, Paul throws in disobedient to parents. There's not one person in this room who can say that they have never disobeyed their parents at one point or another. If you think that, meet with me after this and we'll talk about it. Have a dialogue. Um, so Paul throws you into this mix of idolaters. Just so that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Our sin, all of it, stems from worshiping creature over creator. And that is true in homosexuality. That is true of every sin. So the question becomes, then how are we to think about it? How are we to think about this issue of homosexuality? The culture is having all kinds of debates about the validity of same-sex marriage, why it should be so. And so we as the church need to be able to think biblically and rightly about this issue. So in this section, I want to answer some common questions questions on how to think about this issue. We already know that it's sin. We know that the culture's talking about it. So how do we think about it? The first question that is often asked and one of the things that is claimed by many who claim to be homosexual is I'm born gay. I was born this way. So the question we must think about and first answer is are people born gay. First, we must ask the question, are people gay? And I think from a biblical perspective, we can say no. Our culture has made a person's sexual preference the sum total of who they are. This is unbiblical and erroneous. You are not your sexuality. I don't introduce myself to people as a heterosexual male. It's not what I do. When we're born, we're not given some rite of passage where we decide what we are or claim to be this or that. Your sexuality is just a part of who you are. It's not the sum total. You are a person created in the image of God with a mind, a will, and emotions. That's who you are. Listen, I'm a guy who likes to eat meat, right? Like, if, if I'm going to have a plate of food, it's probably going to have some kind of wonderful protein on it. In the morning, it's going to be bacon or sausage, right? Or maybe a fried pork chop. Amen. All right? Um, if, it's, if it's lunch, it might be a big ham sandwich. It might be a multitude of things. Probably a Chick-fil-A sandwich. All right? Um, and I like steak. I like anything that includes a cow, a pig, fish, or chicken. 
However, when I'm introducing myself to someone, I never tell them, I'm a carnivore. I like to eat meat. I'm a carnivore. Right? Nor would I ever crusade against PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals, because they claim that people shouldn't kill or eat animals. I'm not going on a crusade against PETA and calling them bigots and haters because they say I shouldn't eat a ribeye for dinner. It's only one preference that I possess. It is not who I am. It is not my identity. So are people gay? No. They're people created in the image of God who have fallen into sin and who Christ died for to redeem. That's who we are. So, in addressing the question, are people born gay? We should ask this question. Are people born with a proclivity to same-sex attraction? In other words, do they have a bent toward that? And to that question, I would say absolutely. People are born with a proclivity toward same-sex attraction. Just as some are born with a genetic proclivity toward alcoholism, toward theft, or gambling... There are some people who are born with an inclination toward the same sex. So in that sense, yes, people are born gay. They may struggle with same-sex attraction more than their next-door neighbor. They may struggle with it more than their brother or their sister. Just like the person who can drink five glasses of wine and be fine, and the other who drinks one and likes it a little too much. We all have proclivities towards certain sins. Some of it has to do with our upbringing. Some of it is just in us. In a fallen world, this is what we deal with. The second question that's been raised recently, or the statement that's being made, is gays are being treated like blacks during the civil rights movement. So... Again, on the Gospel Coalition blog, Vody Bauckham, a pastor on the north side of Houston who is an African-American, addressed this question. The article was entitled, Is Gay the New Black? And the answer is no. Gay is not the new black. He writes this, The first problem with the idea of conflating sexual orientation and race is the fact that homosexuality is undetectable apart from self-identification. Determining whether or not a person is black, Native American, or female usually involves no more than visual verification. In other words, this cannot be equated with blacks during the civil rights movement because you can't just look at someone and say that they're gay. Someone has to tell you. Somebody has to self-identify as homosexual in order for you to even know. Whereas in the civil rights movement, People could look at someone and know that they were black and refuse them service. Bodie Bauckham continues, Moreover, the homosexual community itself has made this identification even more complicated in an effort to distance itself from those whose same-sex behavior they find undesirable. Many of you will remember a couple of years back the Jerry Sandusky scandal at Penn State. Right? This man was accused and convicted of molesting young boys in the locker rooms at Penn State. 
But if we were to label his activity as homosexual activity, the homosexual lobby along with academia and the media would go crazy saying that is not the case. He's a pedophile. He didn't take part in homosexual practices. Hence, it seems that same-sex attraction alone isn't even enough to identify a person as homosexual. The question then becomes, what about homosexual relationships in college that stop afterwards or in prison? Are those people homosexual? What about people who come out of homosexual lifestyles? Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.9 goes through this whole list of sins and then he says to the church at Corinth, and such were some of you. So we can follow that conclusion to mean that some have come out of the homosexual lifestyle. So what about those people who were homosexual and now are not? Gay cannot be equated with being African American, Native American, female, male, any of those things because it has too many tests by which to confirm that. That is not the new black. People who are attracted to the same sex cannot be compared to the men and women of African, um, African American race who were treated as subhuman by many around the world and in the U.S. So can a person be Christian and be gay? This, this is the question that we come to and we have to answer in the church and we have to talk about. Can a person be a Christian and be gay? The first thing we have to ask is can a person be a Christian and struggle with same-sex attraction? Because we've already said a person's sexual identity is not who they are. It's not their full identity. That is not the sum total of their character and who they are. So can a person struggle with same-sex attraction and still be a Christian? To that, I say yes. I doubt there is a man in the room who would say they never struggle with lust anymore. Not a problem. We all struggle with sexual sin on some level, whether it's in our minds, in our hearts, or whether it's acting out on it. We all struggle with our sinful natures. So can a person struggle with same-sex attraction and be a Christian? Absolutely they can struggle with it. The term to realize and understand is that they struggle. In other words, they are fighting against it by the power of the Holy Spirit. They want to overcome. And it may be a lifelong struggle. But that person can be a Christian The second question we have to ask is, can one live in an open, unrepentant, homosexual lifestyle and claim to be a Christian? And the answer to that is no. How can we, Paul asked the question in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the question. Can one live in an open, unrepentant, homosexual lifestyle? No. Can one live in an open, unrepentant, adulterous relationship and be a Christian? No. Can one live in open, unrepentant sin of any kind and be a Christian? No. Repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. And that means turning to Christ and turning to the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome our sin. Will we still struggle? Yes. Will sometimes we give in to sin? Yes. 
But the question is, the posture of my heart, one of arrogance, saying, I'm not wrong, I'm not a sinner, I'm not sinful in this area. Matthew 18 has a great answer to that question. If you read through Matthew 18, Paul sa- or Christ says, if somebody sins against you, go to that brother in private. If he repents and asks forgiveness, the matter should be dropped. If not, you take two or three witnesses. And if that person is still unrepentant, you take it to the church. And at the end of all of that, if they still have not repented of their sin, then you consider them an unbeliever. And don't fellowship with them as a believer any longer. So we have a biblical standard by which to judge these things. If one is living in an open homosexual lifestyle and they are called to repentance and they refuse to repent and try to turn, then we cannot consider them a believer. So how do we address this in the church? We've thought through some of the major questions being asked by culture, some of the major arguments being thrown out. But how do we address it in the church? We address it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must first recognize that we are all sexual sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. I want to read that whole passage for you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither is the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, such were some of you. You belong in that list. Don't be deceived. These kind of people don't inherit the kingdom of God. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We first must recognize that we are sexual sinners in need of God's grace. In need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't start there, we cannot approach another person in love, understanding where they're at. Secondly, in love we offer the gospel as to all sinners. Now this is the problem. Love has been redefined by our culture and by our society. Love has been redefined to mean approval. If we love someone, then we should approve of their lifestyle. But this is completely illogical. Loving someone means wanting the best life for them that they can have. We are commanded by Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves. I want for you what I want for myself, which is the very best that God has. Loving someone is wanting what's best for them. If you're a parent in this room, you understand this better than anyone else. You want what is best for your child. So when your child was young, you probably spanked them if they ran out into the street. You may have spanked them if they touched things that they shouldn't touch that could hurt them. And it wasn't to be mean. 
It wasn't out of spite or hatred. It was you wanted what was best for them. Don't run into the street. You may get hit by a car and die. Don't touch the stove when it's on. It will burn you and it's going to hurt, right? There are things that we do in rebuking our children because we love them and we want what's best for them. Our culture thinks love means we just approve of everything you do. And that's what loving you means. I let you live however you would like to live. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. We'll go about our way. But love, the love of Christ calls us to much, much more. The love of Christ requires rebuke. It requires a call to repentance. The gospel is one of repentance. Christ died for sinners. He was raised for sinners. Not so that we would remain in our sin, but that we could repent and be holy and have the power to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is our best. And that is what God wants for us. The gospel is the power of God to make sinners Holy. We saw it here in 1 Corinthians 6. But you were washed. They were changed. Paul doesn't say they're still in this lifestyle and continue to live this way. But he says the gospel changed them. They were washed. They were sanctified. And they were justified. So how do we address our homosexual neighbor or friend or family member we address them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that we have sinned sexually as well as many other ways. That we were in need of grace and that so are they. And calling them to a life that is so much better in Christ. Secondly, we must walk with homosexuals as they repent and believe. The gospel is not a magic pill that one takes and is immediately freed from all sin, never to return to their struggles again. If you're in this room and you're trusting Christ, you know that as well as I do. That we all still struggle with our sin. So the idea that a homosexual comes to Christ. And never struggles with the homosexual tendencies or lifestyle that they have lived. Is false. They will still struggle. And we must, as we do with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Walk alongside them. Encouraging them in their walk with Jesus. Loving them. Holding them accountable. When you became a Christian, you didn't stop all your sinning. You've probably told a lie since you became a Christian. You've probably gossiped since you became a Christian. You've probably lusted after a woman again since you've been a Christian. We don't cease from all of our sinning, so why do we expect the person who struggles with same-sex attraction to just cease from their sinning? Why do we expect that we can pray the gay away? It's the dumbest thing I've heard. We walk with them. We love them. We spur them on to love and good deeds, just as we would with any other brother and sister in Christ who struggles with a sin. 
this is an issue that the church must get right. Culture's talking about it. The church is going to be divided over it. And eventually the church will be persecuted for this issue. Many in Christian scholarship and theologians believe that this will be the first area in which the church is persecuted in the United States of America. We will lose tax-exempt status if you preach against homosexuality, if you refuse to perform gay wedding ceremonies. That's where it will start and it will continue on from there. There have been pastors in Great Britain and Canada already arrested for preaching against homosexuality in their pulpits. And it will not be long before it comes to this country. The culture has made their decision. The only thing that changes people's hearts and minds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must be on mission, not on a political mission to get our agenda across, but we must be on a mission to win over the hearts and the minds of people to the gospel and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. It's about the kingdom. It's about at the last day one sexual sinner standing next to another glorifying our Father for the great grace that He has lavished upon us. Let's pray. God, in a room this size, I recognize that there are men and women who struggle with sexual sin in many different areas. God, and there are those in this room who may even struggle with homosexual attraction. God, I pray that our people by your spirit would be able to love and encourage and share the good news of Jesus Christ that they can be free from sin God I pray that we would speak in a way that is loving that is gentle that is gracious As we confront these issues in our society, as we interact with a fallen world on a day-to-day -day basis, God, that we wouldn't pound out our arguments to win the debate. But God, that we would share the gospel freely to win the hearts of men and women who are slaves to sin. God, that you would liberate them. Help us be a people on mission for you, for your kingdom, for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One quick note. if.